welcome back to Changing Climate, Changing Migration, a podcast from the Migration Policy Institute that looks at migration and human movement in the face of climate change. Through this podcast and conversations with top experts in the field, we hope to get beyond the headlines and provide some nuanced analysis about an issue that's of growing interest, but which we're still learning a lot about. I'm Julian Haddam, the host of this podcast and the editor of NPI's online journal, The Migration Information Source. Today, I want to get a bit more specific about climate migration. In particular, I want to figure out how many people there are who might move in response to some of the effects of climate change in coming years. But it turns out that's not an easy question to answer. Depending on who you ask, you get a big range of numbers. Um, One commonly cited figure, which I believe dates back to the late environmentalist Norman Myers, and which gets thrown around a lot, is that there will be 200 million climate migrants globally by the year 2050. But projections vary a lot. Some researchers have said that at the lower end, there could be just a few million people that we might call climate migrants over the next three decades. And on the higher end, uh, the nonprofit group Christian Aid has estimated that there could be 1 billion people displaced by climate change by 2050. The think tank the Institute for Economics and Peace recently released a report saying that there could be 1.2 million pe- billion people who could be at risk of displacement. So there's a lot to wade through here. And to help me make sense of this, my guest today is Julia Bloker. She is a researcher focusing on climate change and migration at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research in Germany. She has an excellent TEDx talk on climate migration, and I'm very excited to talk to her. Julia, thank you so much for coming on. Hi, Julian. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you're very welcome. So you've been in this space for a while. You have surely seen all these numbers floating around. Um, which ones can we trust? Which of these is right? So it's a kind of short answer, I think, that I don't think really any of these numbers have a huge amount of merit um, in an academic scientific sense. Of course, they are numbers that we see a lot in the news media because they are headline grabbing uh, and they do have some, you know, well intentioned, good intentions behind them and some interesting things that we can learn from these. But uh, overall, most of these numbers are are difficult to Takes, take very seriously in um, policy planning uh, or really understanding the reasons why people are moving in the context of climate change. Um, and I'm really happy to explain why, of course, this is a very important question. Please. Why are there so many different predictions and why are they not very useful? Absolutely. Well, there's, they're, they're all quite different, as you have noticed. So the first um, ones that came up, I think even as early as 1985, we were talking about 50 million uh, people displaced in the context of climate change by um, by the middle of this century. Um, and really what I think we see here is the mismatch between natural sciences and human behavior. And what I mean by that is most of these reports and figures are really looking at um, making risk ass- assessments using population projections. So looking into the future of um numbers of people, especially in in concentrating in in certain parts of the world, and then looking at uh, natural and physical processes like drought, which will make it difficult to live in that area, or sea level rise, um, and other climate-related hazards. Uh, But what we know as migration scholars is is that people don't wait around until sea level is around their waist. Uh, People migrate (laughs) 
already before that, or and also have many, many other different reasons why they might choose to migrate um, that have nothing to do with, with climate-related hazards. So really, these um, numbers are very often referred to in, in my line of work as like back-of-the-envelope uh, estimations um, of people who are at risk of certain climate change impacts, but there's so much uncertainty involved there uh, that and really a sort of lack of human agency in these numbers that they're not very useful from a scientific perspective and also really are not very useful operationally um, for people and uh, for, well, NGOs and governments that, that may have to deal in the future with people who are moving um, from natural hazard-induced disasters or climate change impacts that are more gradual, like, like droughts, land degradation, et cetera. So is the calculation basically for a lot of these um, a lot of these estimates that we know X number of people live in you know, low-lying areas or areas that uh, are at risk of a hurricane, whatever disaster, as those as sea levels rise, as hurricanes come, they will have to move. Is it like basically that kind of simple calculus or how, how, how does the math work in a simplistic form? Right. That's basically exactly it is, is that we look at the number of people that are living in climate prone areas and then project those populations into the future. And, but the reason why this type of risk assessment is, is not super helpful when we're talking about a social and behavioral phenomenon like, like migration um, is, is that those, those impacts may or may not, uh, you know, involve people moving in, in the future. People may move before, they may choose not to move, even if they're in a risky area. That's something that um, we see a lot, especially in developing countries where people simply can't afford to migrate and so they, they stay behind. Um, but also these estimations are, are difficult uh, in the sense that we already have a lot of uncertainty involved in climate projections and in population projections as well. Um, the latest uh, IPCC assessment report also studying all the literature out there suggested that we should have very low confidence um, in these projections of, of migration in the future because of the multi-causal nature of migration, as well as uncertainty inherent in, in the climate models that, that, were, that are being used. So you have uncertainty in the climate models, you have uncertainty in which emissions pathway we will follow uh, as a globe. You know, are we going to get to two degrees or four, maybe even five degrees warming? This makes a huge difference uh, in terms of actual impacts uh, on, you know, local communities. Um, and then we have the uncertainty of how people will perceive and react to the climate impacts all around them on a very local level. Um, so it doesn't really necessarily make sense to talk about global estimations of people who would be affected by climate change and may or may not move as a result, um, you know, vulnerability will look really very different in New York City, where also the, the sea level rise is uh, likely to have an impact as compared to agriculturalists in sub-Saharan Africa whose livelihoods depend on rain-fed uh, agriculture. Yeah. So uh, I've noticed that a lot of official, quote-unquote, like kind of UN organizations, places like the International Organization for Migration, uh, the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, refrain, it seems like, from making some of these predictions. So what if you're in that organization, if you're in one of these big official bodies, what are you looking at then for future projections? I mean, how are you thinking about what the world will look like in 10, 20, 30 years? Yes. Yeah, so 
this is something I think we have to grapple with a lot in uh, in my line of work. And for example, at the at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, we're not completely shying away from this type of of discussion. Um, what we do and what I think. Uh, groups in, in IOM and UNHCR uh, probably prefer to do is look more at uh, local impacts of climate change and how people are currently dealing with them and, and what type of coping strategies um, they are able to employ and may, may continue to employ in the future, which includes migration. Uh, and then um, try to think about how we can improve on resilience in these, in these uh, communities so that people are better able to deal with climate change impacts um, and may be better able to stay where they are if they so choose or migrate in such a way that they can actually increase their uh, resilience and, and household income sources rather than um, using migration as a kind of last resort strategy. Um, but I also think, and this is sort of uh, another point, is that the UN, UN agencies that are working with migrants and uh, conventional refugees in, in the 1951 convention sense um, are a bit hesitant to, to play into this narrative about climate change uh, leading to population movements, um, in part because even though these previous assessments may have been well-intentioned and also helpful in terms of understanding risks of climate change, they tend to feed into anti-immigration narratives rather than uh, provoking climate action or climate change action. So this is something that a lot of people have been <clears throat> discussing recently, um, that you know, there, there's a bit of fear-mongering going, going around and uh, talking about hundreds of uh, millions of people who may move in the context of climate change doesn't really help that, um, especially when... This, the research that we have tells us that people are going to much more likely stay within their own home countries and not uh, cross international borders. So the whole climate refugee debate is a bit misleading and uh, can even be uh, counterproductive. And it reframes, it seems like you're saying, the conversation, at least from a kind of a political level, from one focused on climate change to one focused on immigration, which have uh, very different responses depending on where you are in the world. Is that fair? I think that's very fair. So I would, I think that what we try to do in uh, at the Potsdam Institute and in, in other researchers is really try to provide an evidence base so that migration policy can be sensible, that climate change uh, policy can be sensible. And I think that that requires an integration between natural sciences and social sciences um, but it also really requires us understanding uh, perceptions of people, uh, localized impacts of climate change and how people are already dealing with this, um, as well as specific vulnerabilities of different population groups and how um, organizations like IOM, UNHCR, or other uh, international NGOs can really help specific groups of people uh, confront the challenges that they will face because climate change is not going to impact everyone uh, in the same way. Yeah. And so I, I want to be clear, a lot of these projections that we are talking about are mostly forward looking for the future. Um, but what do we, I mean, we know these kinds of movements or that we're talking about are happening now, right? I mean, what people are moving or changing their patterns of movement because of changes in impacts from the environment and climate. 
right? I mean, do we know how many people there are? Or if we want to refrain from numbers, where are they? What kind of people there are? I mean, what can you tell us about who these current populations are that are uh, moving or changing their movements in response to some of the climate impacts today, tomorrow, yesterday? Yeah, so this is when we get into a, a bit of a technical conversation, um, because we do know in a, a lot of countries how many people are displaced by disasters. So um, people who are fleeing their homes at a moment's notice because of an imminent threat, um, which in 2019, uh, 95% of those hazards were weather related. So storms, cyclones, hurricanes, and so on. Um, this pe- this type of person um, in 2019 alone was 24.9 million uh, people. So and and that's just for 2019. And of course, you have to put a couple of footnotes on these numbers because uh, we're not really able to say that that is directly related to um, the number of people. So we say 24.9 million it may be that people were double counted if they were displaced more than once in the course of the year. Um, Also, there's a significant amount of inter-year variability because these displacements are caused by large-scale events. Um, So if we look back to 2010, we would have seen a huge uh, spike in the number of disaster displacements because of the hurricane, I mean, sorry, the earthquake in in Haiti. Uh, Whereas, you know, in in past years, most... uh, uh, displacement events have been related to to weather events. Um, so that is that information is coming from the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center that uh, monitors the number of people um, displaced by disasters every year. But they also rely on information from governments, um, which is not always systematically uh, collected and not always and not really standard. So in some countries, you consider people who become homeless as a result of a disaster as being displaced in other countries. They don't consider that the right definition. So it's, uh, it's, it's again, difficult to say for, for, for a global um, estimation on that. When it comes to, sorry, go ahead. No, sorry. And that number is talking about displacement, right? Which tends to be like short term. Usually people will go back. Um, I mean, as we've discussed, they won't always go back and kind of the, compounding effort or the compounding impact of a lot of events might cause a more permanent migration. But displacement tends to be short term and probably just to somewhere else within the same country, right? These aren't necessarily people who are, a hurricane comes and they say, okay, I'm moving to the country next door and living there for good. These tends to be short term movements or no? Our understanding is just that it's a really small minority of people who cross an international border um, and most of the most people who are displaced in the context of a disaster will stay within their home country. Um, the few that may cross, uh, there is no current legal solution for them. They would not be considered a refugee in under the 1951 convention. Um, it's a it's it's a it's an emerging area of international law, basically, and it's um, an, an interesting one. Um, in the when we're looking at these these displacements, though, um, we may consider that in the future they'd be more likely to cross borders. If, uh, exam- for example, if, if um, global warming impacts are so severe in the country that they have really nowhere within their own country to go, it, it can be a possibility. Um, but the the duration of the displacement is is difficult to say because we very rarely have data on 
displacement over over time. The longitudinal data is really lacking. But the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center, again, um, has done research on this and suggested that displacement may last longer than previously thought. People may remain living in displacement for, for years. Okay. Uh, and I want to briefly talk with you about some of the possible consequences of this movement or changing in movement or displacement. Um, I mean, on its face, like all migration or all movement, it's neither necessarily good nor bad, but it can lead to different outcomes. And one of those outcomes that uh, I know you've kind of looked into and that has risen in prominence in recent years is the possibility of conflict, particularly violent conflict, um, at least according to some research, right? researchers. Can you explain that to me? I mean, what do we know about how some of this movement in response to climate impacts may cause or impact uh, violent conflict? Right. So as you mentioned, one thing I've been looking into recently is how um, climate change impacts add pressure to existing vulnerabilities uh, and also to existing community fault lines. So climate change may in the fu- it, it may currently and also in the future um, add pressure to uh, resource-based competition, including competition between different types of land users. Um, and this type of dispute may not necessarily become violent, but it, it can escalate um, in, into a localized uh, flare-up of, of conflict. Um, other ways in which climate change may affect uh, conflict is, I mean, in a theoretical sense, there could be interstate conflict in the case that uh, there's um, conflicting claims over cross-boundary resources, like in the in the Nile River area. These are very highly climate-affected countries that are now uh, trying to to under, to figure out how they can cooperate to uh, have water resources. Um, Another way, which the standoff between like with Ethiopia and Egypt, right, over this dam and kind of some of the water usage there. Right, exactly. So we could consider that in the future when, uh, as resources become increasingly scarce as a result of, of uh, climate change impacts, um, this kind of diplomatic tensions may may not be resolved as they were in the past um, and can, can escalate. But we also know that in previous, uh, or at least historically, Cooperation over cross-boundary resources has tend to lead to uh, more positive diplomatic relationships between countries and actually reduce the likelihood of, of, uh, of interstate conflict. So if we consider natural resources um, that are shared across European countries, for example. And um, related to that, but it's, it's kind of something that is more speculative than anything, is what happens in the case that uh, citizens believe that their government is not adequately addressing climate change or not adequately uh, managing natural resources, this could potentially lead to civil unrest and uh, and escalate into um, civil conflict. Mm. And so anger at the government, basically, for not doing enough to deal with some of these hazards. Right. That's, I mean, that's hypothetically possible, hypothetical, right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so let's get a little bit, bit more specific. I know you've done some work uh, in Tanzania and as well as uh, in the Pacific Island states, elsewhere in East Africa. I mean, what have you seen on the ground, particularly about uh, some of these conflicts that might emerge? I know you've done some of your work about Tanzania hasn't particularly focused on um, competing like land use issues, right? Like farmers versus herders and kind of can, tell me about that. 
Yes, we are doing research in Tanzania at the moment about um, how local communities uh, adapt to climate change, uh, including through migration. And through that research, really, uh, we came across this issue of um, land-based uh, disputes between different communities, especially between um, farming communities and, and pastoralists, uh, mobile pastoralists. So what, what I've been particularly interested in is in the case that uh, pastoralists are moving more frequently and in longer distances and um, uh, over longer periods of time, as a result of uh, scarcity of pasture and water resources, they become increasingly in contact with uh, farming communities they may not have previous contact with um, and also with other pastoralist groups that they um, may not have, you know, historically been um, dealing with as often as they as they may be now. Um, in Tanzania, there is uh, a kind of pluralistic land tenure situation in which uh, land is owned by the government in a, in a certain sense, but also allows there there's um, local administration of land that allows for customary land tenure. So this unfortunately leads to misunderstandings in a lot of cases where the um, private land ownership may not coincide with the customary land ownership. And by that, I mean simply that pastoralists are used to for generations uh, going to the same um, areas to for pasture and for water for, for the livestock. So we have... Um, been looking in particular in, in a central area of Tanzania and also in the semi-arid semi-arid area in the northern regions um, and found a lot of evidence of farmer herd conflicts, uh, especially during drought years, which is interesting in itself, um, and are trying to understand better why these conflicts arise, what are the underlying historical tensions that may exist there that can um, flare up in, in when when resources become scarce, uh, and also what are the policy solutions that we can recommend to to reduce the likelihood of conflict? And super briefly, uh, I mean, what are those policy solutions? I mean, what kind of steps are there that uh, governments or NGOs, whatever, could take to mitigate some of these potential conflicts? Uh, and are they being taken, or are the is the work still at a pretty elementary, basic stage at this point? Well, luckily, the government of Tanzania is, is highly aware of this situation and has been uh, working on this for, for some years, especially since the early 2000s. There was a number of um, violent uh, flare-ups between farmer and herder groups in, in parts of the country. So I think the, the, the foundation of the issue is really about um, mismatch between private land ownership and customary land ownership. So the best way to solve that would be to bring these different groups together, work out some kind of uh, mutually beneficial land use plan, um, and then ensure that people are faithfully implementing that plan. Um, and this is what the local communities also told us that they think that that would be the best way forward. Um, the local governments, um, meaning you know the village level, have brought people together to discuss these problems um, and create village-level land use plans, usually and more successfully um, in consultation with village elders, uh, religious leaders, uh, other types of community leaders, 
um, and then really work to ensure that these are fair and that uh, people are able to and and willing to um, follow them through. Uh, this is super interesting. I have a whole number of questions I would like to ask, uh, but I think we should probably leave it there in the interest of time. Um, but we talked about some big issues and I really appreciated this conversation. Julia, thank you so much for coming on. This has been really fun. Thank you again. Uh, Julia Bloker is a researcher at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research. She's also an associate member of the Hugo Observatory in Belgium and the president of the International Youth Federation. Uh, and she's the co-author of a recent report called Homeland for GIZ, uh, the German Development Agency, on the impacts of climate change and migration in island states. And she's worked on a, a range of other reviews and analyses and reports uh, and other publications that are worth mentioning. Part of the difficulty with some of these predictions is that climate migration is not a straightforward process. It's indirect, it's difficult to measure, and it will look different for different people in different places. The same is true with climate change, and nothing is a foregone conclusion. There are a lot of factors that can affect how changes in the environment impact people and what they do in response. Thank you for joining us today and stay tuned as we continue to explore the linkages between climate change and migration. Keep up to date with every episode of Changing Climate, Changing Migration at migrationpolicy.org slash podcasts or by subscribing to the podcast service of your choice. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It helps a lot. We also invite you to dig deeper into our climate change work. You can find our special series of articles on climate migration, including an article that Julia wrote about her research in Tanzania at migrationpolicy.org slash climate. This episode was made possible by Lisa Dixon and Kenya Guerrero, with special help from Michelle Middlesat and Sarah Stadecki. Music is from Patrick Patrickios. I'm Julian Adam. Thank you for listening. <laughs>